Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today, we're discussing the upcoming elections. Rising gas prices have triggered a political firestorm around a range of energy issues, from subsidies for fossil and clean fuels to the Keystone XL pipeline, speculative trading, and tapping the strategic petroleum reserve. President Obama has vilified big oil while also calling for more domestic oil production. Climate and cap and trade have become toxic words that rarely cross the lips of politicians in either party. For the next hour, we'll discuss energy policy and politics with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And joining us, we're delighted to welcome three experts. Donnie Fowler is a Democratic clean tech strategist. Lauren Kay is president of the California Foundation for Commerce and Education, a think tank affiliated with the California Chamber of Commerce. And Dave Metz is a pollster with FM3, a Democratic polling shop that does a lot of work with a Republican polling firm. Please welcome them to Climate One. So, Dave, let's begin with you. Uh, we're in an election cycle. Um, how does energy rank right now in terms of the political debate and the polling that you're seeing in there nationally? And then we'll get kind of get into some California issues. Well, I think it's uh, important to think about public opinion on energy in two dimensions. Uh, the first dimension is what types of energy policies most Americans support. Um, and there we see actually a lot of unanimity on, on some of the big picture questions. Uh, most Americans, regardless of geography, political party, gender, age, are most supportive of expanding use of renewable energy, solar and, and wind power in particular. Um, and they are much less supportive of continued use of fossil fuels, coal and, and oil, uh, most notably with natural gas an exception to that, that, that has relatively high levels of support. Uh, but once we get past those patterns, the second and more important question is how much do those issues matter? when voters are making their decisions about how they're going to cast the, their ballots. Um, and there, the results are somewhat more mixed. Um, in certain parts of the country, in certain races, it's likely to be a very important issue. Uh, but there are other places, particularly in this economy, where there may be other issues that uh, get more attention and are a little bit more on voters' minds. And I think a lot of these campaigns are going to be about trying to find ways to frame the energy issue and, and make it drive votes um, in ways that will benefit either party. 
and we'll get into some of the language around that and some of the specifics. Uh, Lauren Kay, would you agree with that, that Americans are generally favorable toward gas and renewables, not so much coal? Uh, we don't have much coal here in California. Would you agree with uh, what Dave Metz said? Oh, sure. I, I, you know, just, just asking a question straight up uh, about what sort of energy do you prefer, uh, most Americans, most Californians will uh, say exactly what Dave did. Uh, the key issue, though, is what happens when it comes down to choices? What happens when you when you say that choosing a certain kind of energy uh, will make it more expensive, will raise the cost of your energy bills? Then uh, that's when you get a real discussion. That's when you really get uh, to understand uh, the importance of these policy choices. And the best example of that is uh, gasoline prices now. Gasoline prices are going up. They're not at record highs, but they're uh, they're going up. Uh, but people are uh, really noticing. They're telling pollsters it's a big deal, and uh, the politicians are scrambling on it. Donnie Fowler, do uh, voters might say, it's one thing to tell a poster something, it's another thing to vote that way. Uh, do people actually vote based on their beliefs in energy? Does energy matter when people go in the, in the ballot box, or is it health care, economics, taxes, social issues? Well, to the degree that energy is tied to economics, it, it does affect and influence the vote. Uh, the other way to think about energy as an issue is really what it represents as a value. Uh, and so for Democrats, liberals, uh, Energy, alternative energy in the environment represent a certain value that they hold, and they want their candidates to share that value. For conservatives, uh, there's another set of values that when you talk about energy, you know, the idea of, of more oil production at home, does, it's not because they're for more oil production per se. It's that it represents a set of values to conservative voters. And so energy matters within a certain set of value frames for voters more than it probably matters as an issue that they think specifically about when they're in that voting booth. Lauren Kay, would you agree with that, 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 that Republicans value energy differently or that there's just sort of value sets and energy is one thing in there? Uh, well, that's an interesting point that Donnie made. I think that uh, that when when Republicans and conservatives think about, uh, think about energy, they think about it in terms of uh, its relationship to the economy, that it's a, an indivisible part of the economy, and they also think about it in terms of security. Uh, that, you know, when you hear politicians talking about, uh, you know, producing energy at home, uh, reducing uh, the influence of, uh, of foreign oil, I mean, that may not make any sense economically, but it makes a lot of sense uh, politically, and, and uh, that's an important thing for, uh, well, I think for Americans generally, but uh, conservatives and Republicans in particular. Does anyone ever get voted in or out of office because of their voting record on energy? Well, it probably, it probably didn't help Jimmy Carter back in 1980. Ah, the uh, cardigan sweater. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that, uh, I don't know, Dave. <laughs> um, it's hard to say whether people get voted in or out of office solely on that issue, but I think there is ample evidence that uh, politicians think that associating themselves with clean energy is going to help them politically. Uh, if you want to meet political candidates or elected officials, you should open up a, a solar manufacturing shop because there will be press conferences and front of your office all day long. And there's a reason for that. It's because voters across party lines, as, as Lauren and I have said, uh, support these policies. Although I talked with a guy from Solyndra last night who said the last thing you want to do is have a politician come to your factory because <laughs> then it becomes politicized. He wishes President Obama never went to Solyndra because, you know, they could have flown under the radar, right? So that's a double-edged... Perhaps, but but Solyndra is a little bit of an exceptional case. And, and uh, when we talk about energy this year, that's inevitably going to get raised. 
Um, and just one thing I'd note about that. We've done a lot of research around public attitudes towards Solyndra. And what we found is that, first of all, in the big picture, uh, when we asked voters nationally in a poll about a month ago whether they thought Solyndra was evidence that public investment in renewable energy uh, wasn't worth it, that the industry didn't have merit, that these it wasn't capable of sustaining itself without a, a public subsidy, or, on the other hand, whether they thought the failure of Solyndra was an isolated instance where one company's business plan wasn't successful, but the industry as a whole was healthy and worthy of public support. By a two-to-one margin, they chose the latter position. And what we're really seeing is that the discontent that the public has about Solyndra is not about public investment in renewable energy per se. It is about spending massive amounts of public money uh, in an attempt to stimulate a business and create jobs in a way that failed. It's part of a broader narrative about the economy and the role of public spending in stimulating uh, more job creation. It is not about the fundamental viability of renewable energy. The government energy. should be doing this period. This is something for markets and companies to do, not government. Or government does it badly when it tries to do it. So Solyndra is, is not a, uh, an indictment on the solar industry. If you ask analysts, Bloomberg and others, that professional financial analysts, the solar industry is expected to more than double in the next five years in the United States. So Solyndra is a... Is a is you not, mean installation, not necessarily manufacturing. Yeah, the, the, there will be twice as, more than twice as much solar in the United States, solar energy in the United States in the next five mm-hmm. years. Some people say three or four times as much. Those are the financial analysts. That tells you really the health of the solar industry. Solyndra is, in fact, a political story. And it's a political story driven by two interests. The first interest are the people who don't want competition in the market. That's the uh, natural gas and the coal folks. They don't want to have to compete for that consumer dollar or for that utilities uh, plant. So they're rooting for solar to fail. They want, they want to find ways to destroy solar in the marketplace, reduce competition. The other people who don't really care about the, the market for energy are uh, some, not all, Republican campaign operatives who see an opportunity with Solyndra to paint President Obama as corrupt somehow, despite the fact that Solyndra's CEO, uh, when it went bankrupt, was a Republican. But the, the idea of these Republican campaign operatives is this is a way we can say that President Obama is corrupt. And this is a way we can say that President Obama doesn't know what he's doing when he spends all this money. So, again, it, Solyndra is a political story, not really uh, an accurate tale about what's happening in the solar industry in the United States. Lauren Kay, how do you see Solyndra? Well, but, but I, I, I agree in, in part, but uh, I, I think that, you know, Donnie might be whistling past the graveyard a little bit here. <laughs> the, the, uh, because what, what Solyndra represents, as Dave, as Dave said, in, in large part, is the ineptitude of government in choosing, uh, choosing winners and maybe winners not, and losers. Well, yeah. and, and individual companies, too. Yeah. Uh, and, and that goes to a, a fundamental uh, narrative that that is widely shared in the American uh, electorate that uh, government does a horrible job spending money and it's my money you know I just paid my taxes uh, and you know and they're wasting it all uh, and when uh, when there's a, a bankruptcy of Solyndra uh, when you see all these tales of uh, subsidies and handouts and uh, corporate welfare, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it, that uh, creates a an atmosphere 
that is really poisonous for this uh, for this industry. So it's so I mean, no matter what happens to President Obama uh, or Mitt Romney in 2012, uh, this uh, issue will uh, will remain, and it's something that uh, people who receive subsidies have to uh, contend with. And you see that you see pretty clearly President Obama is playing this subsidy game too, because he's saying the oil, natural gas, and the coal companies don't need subsidies anymore. So. You've got, you've got, you do have this argument about who's getting, who's feeding at the public trough, and the Republicans say, oh, it's those green environmental tree hugging, solar and wind people, and the Democrats are saying, oh, it's the dirty energy companies. Now, the one part that really doesn't work here is that conservatives who, who largely are backing the uh, dirty energy industry claim they want a free market, but you don't hear many of them say, take away the oil subsidies, take away the coal subsidies, take away the natural gas subsidies. They're being very selective in their free market ideology. Is that true, Lauren Kay? I mean, there's subsidies on both sides. You know, uh, the, if you're getting something, you call it an incentive or have some other word for it. If somebody else gets it, it's a subsidy, right? It's a bad thing. But if you're getting it, it's, uh, well, it's It's, it's an investment. It's a, it's a support. <laughs> it's, uh, it's investment. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think it would, I, I don't want to torture your audience by getting into the the arcane details of uh, who gets what and how much subsidies. I think the key difference, though, is that uh, whatever the subsidies are that are provided to uh, coal and oil, they're not critical to the survival of those industries. They're, they might make them more profitable. They might drive investment one place or another. So then taking away the, shouldn't matter. The, well, okay, I'm not, I'm not here to defend them. I'm just telling you the difference. Um, but for the wind and solar industry, those subsidies are the difference between mm-hmm. life and death. I mean, you see what's happened to what was it for solar uh, in 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 Germany. Uh, the Germans are, along with a lot of the Europeans, are removing the subsidies from uh, from solar, and the industry is in desperate shape uh, when you add the uh, some of the other factors they're, they're facing. So the difference between the uh, carbon-based energy and the solar-based energy. Uh, in, in subsidies is that, one, it's nice to have. The other, it's critical. And one way to create a, a level, level playing field would, would be to earn, internalize the costs, right? So there's a lot of externalities, things that uh, sort of this, the atmosphere is used as a, a free sewer, a free, free dump for a lot of fossil fuels. And if, the, if things were levelized, then wouldn't that be a different situation? I mean, real frequent market people and economists would want that, right? To internalize the externalities and have get away with the subsidies and, and have real competition. Does that make sense? Uh, are you asking me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, we've been doing that for decades for air pollution uh, and water pollution. Uh, California has some of the most stringent air pollution laws in the world. And uh, I'd say that uh, to a large extent... Air pollution and water pollution has been internalized uh, in California. And you're finding industries are, uh, you know, those that chosen to remain here are, are, are doing okay. And so I think it's a bit of a, uh, a red herring to suggest that, you know, the, the atmosphere is a, is a sewer. The air quality in California is cleaner than uh, it's ever been uh, since, uh, since the industrial age. Um, the water quality in California is cleaner than it's ever been in the industrial age. And so the fact is that um, uh, because of uh, progressive laws and regulations, especially in California, um, there have been, and as you put it, an internalization of 
the environmental costs of pollution. Dave, that you wanted to jump in here? Uh, no, not on that specific point. I, I mean, I did have a, a thought earlier on the on the issue of subsidies for industries. I mean, we uh, we talk about how the industries that are built on fossil fuels are essential today. Well, the government built an interstate highway system in the 1950s, which is a major subsidy to one industry. Talk about picking winners and losers. Um, now, that may have been an industry that was destined to win anyway, but we now have that system in place, and it's very hard to move away from it. If we want major change in the infrastructure we use to provide ourselves with energy or to serve any of the other vital needs that the country has, at some point there is a break where you need to make a new investment. Um, and so I think, you know, in that framework to sort of start our thinking now and say that our reliance on fossil fuels is sort of here and always been here ignores some of the, the history that led up to that. But there weren't a lot of competing technologies for interstate highways, right? It's not the rail, like the rail system. Also, oh, a government okay. subsidized created during the Civil War. They probably didn't cars like were torn the, the, out. The, the, the airlines were just growing to being fully commercial and available to the public in the 50s. So, yeah, there were competing uh, transportation systems. And in the 50s. we went with highways, and, 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 here, and here we are. Here we are. We're talking about uh, politics and energy here at the Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests are Donnie Fowler, a Democratic clean tech strategist, Lauren Kay from a think tank affiliate with the California Chamber of Commerce and Dave Metz, a pollster. I'm uh, Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the Keystone Pipeline. That's been a very much of a, a political issue these days nationally. It doesn't really touch California, but it does say a lot about energy in this political year. Uh, and so what some people say that we shouldn't invest in that because it's 40 years of dirty infrastructure. Other, The AFL-CIO is for it. They want the jobs. They think it's a good investment project. Donnie Fowler, what, is that, what does Keystone tell us about the energy debate in this political it, year. It, it is, like a lot of issues, it also represents a value statement. Uh, that oil from Canada, a lot of which will move through the Keystone Pipeline, is going to go to market some way. Whether it goes off of eastern Canada, western Canada, or through the United States, it's going to find its way into the market. So stopping the Keystone Pipeline is not stopping the flow of Canadian oil. Although a lot of opponents kind of might well, make Well, they think it will make it more expensive. So the Keystone Pipeline, in reality, is a statement about, again, about values. Environmental community in the United States in particular wants to make a statement. If you are against the Keystone Pipeline, you're an environmentalist. You represent clean energy, alternative energy, or at least the end, stopping dirty energy. And so if you're against the Keystone Pipeline, that's your values. If you're for the Keystone Pipeline, you have another set of values. And so the, the politics of it sets up that way. The reality of it is that at the end of the day, that oil is going to find its way to market. So it's not going to make a difference either way. Dave Metz? It'll be a moral victory. If the they're very excited about it. The, the environmentalists think they're having some influence. Hey, we got Obama to, to hedge on it. Uh, they're all excited, but it may not make a difference. Dave Metz? Well, I, I tend to see this issue entirely through the lens of politics. I mean, the fact of the matter is there are two large groups, which are major constituencies for the Democratic Party, uh, people who consider themselves strong environmentalists and people who are supporters of labor unions. And what we find is that what most of the American public wants, 76% of them, believe that we can craft policies that are going to give us a healthy environment and a strong economy at the same time. Jobs with clean air, clean water, um, and, and a healthy environment. And what a project like this does when it's framed the way it's been framed is force a choice and say we have to pick one or the other. We have to pick jobs or a clean environment. And if we're choosing to protect the environment, that means we're inherently going to lose jobs. 
Um, that's the way it's been framed politically, and understandably, for a president in an election year, that's a very tough position for him to be in. And and that's why he tried to put it off until after the election. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's politically it's a it's it's very well done. But um, the question really is: Are the jobs that would be created by this project um, irreplaceable? Is this the only way those kinds of jobs can be generated? Would the delay to complete the environmental review uh, be fatal to the prospect of having those jobs in a way that would also allow for environmental protection? Uh, and that's where I think you see election year politics play into it. Lauren Kay, any thoughts on, on Keystone, even though it doesn't really touch California, the oil wouldn't come into California? Right. Well, Pres- uh, President Obama was uh, against the Keystone pipeline before he was for it. Uh, you know, he, he uh, uh, had the State Department announce that it was going to be postponed, uh, the entire pipeline, and then a few weeks later he announced that, oh, this other part of the pipeline is going to be built. So... It's, as Dave said, it is, it is entirely a political issue. It's entirely about trying to uh, paddle on the left to uh, uh, please some of the San Francisco environmentalists and paddle on the right to please some of the Midwest labor unions. And I think the president has uh, uh, done about as well as he could hope to do if his goal was to uh, upset the least amount of his base. Or both at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. And uh, the first phase of Keystone before the XL, the extension, went in a couple of years ago with hardly a peep. No, I, I never heard of it. Did anyone heard of Keystone before the XL? Very few people. It went into Cushing, right, from Canada into Cushing. No, all of a sudden, I think the companies were certainly caught by surprise of what that became sort of this, this national lightning rod. Donnie Fowler, is it possible to build Keystone in an environmentally responsible way? And, you know, this false choice of... <laughs> you, you picked the wrong panelist to determine the environmental <laughs> impact of the Keystone Pipeline. I, I don't know uh, how you build it, or if you can, you may be able to. Let's talk about another lightning rod issue, which has been uh, cap-and-trade, which is something that we were sitting here three years ago. Everyone would be talking about, about cap-and-trade. It was a market-based mechanism. Dave Metz, I know you've done some polling on market-based mechanism versus regulatory mechanisms. Tell us how uh, Americans look at market solutions or government regulatory solutions? Uh, Well, it's important to keep in mind that that cap-and-trade as a framework for dealing with carbon pollution is a Republican idea. Um, It's a a conservative principle that drives it. Much like the health care reform that the president passed, which was based on market incentives and was originally uh, presented as a Republican alternative to to President Clinton's plan. Um, There was a time when invoking market mechanisms was enough to get broad support from the center and right of the American public. Um, But things have shifted. Um, And even that kind of framework for a segment of the Republican Party is not an acceptable alternative now, which means that the Republican support you might have seen a decade ago or two decades ago for this kind of policy when something similar was used to address acid rain uh, has receded. And the problem from the perspective of advocates of the policy is it's a very difficult policy to explain. When we sit down in focus groups, it's a process, people, right? It's a process. You don't sell process. Right. That's what. Right? right. I mean, the metaphor we always use to talk about this is is the brownie box. If you all think about shopping for brownies and you're pushing your cart down the aisle and there's a wall of brownie boxes in front of you, the brownie marketing gurus know that what will get you to buy it is giving you a picture of a perfectly soft baked delectable brownie, a large image right there on the front of the box. That's what you want. Now, if you buy the box, that's not what you get. You get a bag of powder inside, and you have to turn the box around, and you see a list of very small, detailed instructions on the back that tell you how to turn the powder into the brownie. Well, 
what we want out of cap and trade is cleaner air. We want good, clean energy jobs. We want to reduce our dependence on foreign oil. These things are the brownie that we want. But in selling the policy, we find ourselves too often turning the brownie box around and reading the recipe and talking about how the, the process, because it's novel, because it's market-based, because it's equitable, because it's efficient, is the right way to go about getting it. And for the public, all of that at, at best confuses them and at worst alienates them. Uh, and so the messaging that's used to sell that, that process, um, I think, is, is misplaced. What we really need to be doing is talking about the ends rather than the means. And that's, that's what's bogged down support uh, for cap-and-trade over the years. So it should have been called something else. There should have been another name for, for, uh, for, for cap-and-trade. Lauren Kay, you have your thoughts on, on cap-and-trade? Uh, sorry, I was thinking about brownies. <laughs> yeah, right. What kind of brownies? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, uh, the Republican... The Republican issue with... Uh, with cap-and-trade isn't about cap-and-trade per se, because, uh, Greg, you're right, uh, cap-and-trade is a market mechanism. Republicans like uh, market mechanisms. Uh, uh, when President Bush, uh, 41, signed the uh, Clean Air Act, there was a market mechanism in there for uh, sulfur dioxide, very successful. Market mechanisms have been used uh, elsewhere uh, for just these reasons. It's... Uh, it's not the market mechanism, and it's misleading to suggest that all of a sudden Republicans are opposed to a market mechanism. Uh, what they're opposed to uh, is the notion that, uh, well, they're opposed to a lot of things having to do with climate change, um, and most of them have to do with the fact that people care about uh, the economy uh, more these days than they uh, do about climate change. Uh, but uh, it has to do with, you know, should the United States or uh, here we can talk about California, uh, should the U.S. or California be going its own way uh, on climate change regulation without the, uh, uh, the rest of the world joining in? Uh, are, is the amount of reduction um, commensurate with the benefit that we'd receive and the, and the uh, effect on the economy? These are the sorts of things that are uh, concerning Republicans and, and, and voters to the extent they think about it. Uh, uh, it's not the mechanism itself. So to say that all of a sudden Republicans are flip-flopping on market-based mechanisms uh, isn't true. What they're uh, having second thoughts about is, you know, getting into this issue alone and at this time. Well, the Waxman-Markey bill, which federally, basically, when you talk about uh, cap-and-trade, is either the Waxman-Markey bill or the, the Warner-Lieberman bill, uh, was, well, how many hundreds of pages went through a lot of committee process? So Republicans had a lot of chances to improve a imperfect mechanism. If, if it was fundamentally the right direction, but this was, you know, turn this nut or, or change this, there was lots of opportunity to do that in the legislative process. In fact, one of the critiques of Wax and Markey was it was so bloated, there was something in there for everybody that it kind of amounted to, to, to legislative mush. I mean, is that fair, Lauren, that, that, that you know, they, they could have fixed what they wanted to fix in it? Legislative mush. I like, I, I like that. Uh, the, well, at the time, they couldn't have fixed it because they were the minority in the House, and the majority of the House determines what the, what the House does. And so um, I think it's uh, unlikely that... But there are uh, lots that, of handouts that, to Coles. That, that would have happened. Well, I'm sure, that's, I'm sure that's true, but uh, it was probably not... They were probably not handed out to Republicans in the House because you don't need Republican votes to pass a bill in the House. Uh, the Senate's a different, a, a different matter, right. uh, of course. Uh, but the... 
but the uh, again, it gets back to what I was saying earlier. I think that Republicans, um, when these bills were finally being addressed, uh, they were taking them up uh, as we were going into this deep and horrible recession. I mean, this is really a, you know, that, that was the, uh, the fault of the leadership of even putting them up there and uh, having them considered for a vote uh, as we were in this recession after doing hard votes on uh, the economic stimulus and on uh, and on the uh, uh, the bank rescue, and while they're working on health care reform, it just it just became apparent that that was politically a, a bridge too far. And I don't think it, it it had much less to do with Republican opposition than it had to do with the uh, with the economic overhang that was going on at the time. But so that's the past. Future California has AB 32, the, the landmark now six-year-old uh, law uh, that Governor Schwarzenegger signed. That includes cap and trade. Uh, the California Chamber of Commerce initially opposed that, but did not oppose uh, a ballot initiative to uh, a referendum on, on that. So are you now uh, supportive of where cap-and-trade is going in California, or are there changes you think ought to be made? Well, cap-and-trade, the Air Resources Board has just adopted uh, rules for cap-and-trade. They adopted that at the end of last year. And uh, to coin a phrase, I think that's turned into regulatory mush. Uh, cap, the the cap-and-trade notion of a market for uh, for trading allowances for emissions has been turned upside down by the Air Resources Board and turned into a 20 or 30 or $40 billion tax on energy, uh, which is uh, completely unnecessary to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in California and is uh, threatening to undermine the entire program. Though there's lots of popular support for that, Donnie Fowler cap and trade is it is it uh, on the right track or is it going to raise prices unnecessarily? It it's not going to raise prices unnecessarily. There, there's a there's a story as long as we're telling stories about brownies and other things. There, there's a story uh, about cap and trade or taking care of the external problems, the pollution that fossil fuels produce. You know, when you drive down the road in your car and you've gone to a fast food restaurant. You finish your burger and your soda, you throw it out the window, uh, the policeman's going to pull you over and give you a fine. Coal companies and the oil companies that drive through our economy toss their pollution out the window and they get no fine at all. There's no economic price that they pay for what they do to the larger society. Cap and trade is a market-based mechanism to try to put some limit on the amount of trash that oil and coal throw out the window and to give a price or a penalty uh, if they continue to do it. It also gives them a pathway through the market to reduce the amount of trash they throw out the window. Now, much of what Lauren said about the the Republican criticism, conservative criticism of cap-and-trade is fair, I would say that's right, and there are some very big political reasons that conservatives want to stop cap-and-trade or what they call cap-and-tax. One is... They don't want to give President Obama or the Democrats a political victory. So there is politics in this. The other is that there's a tremendous amount of money, campaign money, in politics and in legislation. And the oil companies and the coal companies outspend the environmentalists and the alternative energy industry five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten to one or higher. This year, for example, 2012, the coal industry has announced a $40 million campaign to promote clean coal. Even the Bush administration said clean coal wasn't a technology we have today. 
The oil companies are spending $68 million more to promote their campaign for more drilling. The alternative energy industry and the environmentalists combined are unlikely to have something that approaches $20 million. So that's $108 million to about $20 million this year. That money is not only affecting the public perception, but it's influencing legislators because a lot of that money is campaign money. So Lauren's right about the, the, the legislative mush and the regulatory mush that might come, and that's a fair argument, but it's not the whole story. Dave Mess, does that money influence public opinion? Is there a way to track that in your polls, that, uh, that kind of onslaught of advertising, clean coal campaign, all those sorts of things? Um, yes. Uh, money in politics does influence what people think. Um, but it doesn't necessarily lead people to believe exactly what the advertising wants them to believe. What it can do is it can take what would otherwise be an issue where the public is clearly on one side and, and muddy it up, um, cause them to be confused, cause it to, to sort of lose uh, priority with the public. Um, and that's the threat from, from what Donnie is describing. But at the same time, on the underlying premises of the policies we're talking about, public support has been very consistent. Um, despite money that has been spent over the years. If we look at the, the notion of, of AB 32, um, the field poll last year found that 60% of Californians support it. Um, that was roughly the same proportion that voted against Proposition 23. And we should be clarifying, Proposition 23 was a ballot proposition in California that wanted to basically suspend uh, the cap and trade and, and the climate change law in California. Okay. And what we've seen in the data is that Despite the fact that we've been in a down economy for four years, despite the fact that the vote on Proposition 23 took place two years after the crash on Wall Street, uh, that level of public support in the state has remained consistent. Um, and there is a sense, and, and we saw this in the research that we did during the campaign, that, that the public is hesitant to move backwards. Having taken a step uh, to address a problem that is not going to get better on its own and is not going to become less of a problem over time, uh, the public is hesitant to move backwards. And so I think a lot of money can be spent against it, uh, but the evidence so far is, is even when it is, there are still some underlying values there that are pretty strong and pretty durable. And uh, it, it may take our political system a while to catch up uh, to those public perceptions, but, but ultimately it will. There, there is one exception of where you can see some impact, uh, and that's among the most conservative voters in the United States. Um, the, the debate over the Solyndra Solar Company and its failure has been pitched very hard by very conservative media like Fox News and AM Talk Radio. And if you look at some numbers, polling numbers, um, for the most conservative voters in 2011, you said traditional energy versus alternative energy. 47% said traditional energy, 43% said alternative energy in 2011. This year, one year later, it's uh, about 65% that want tr of conservatives that want traditional energy and only 26% now that want alternative energy. So a four-point gap has turned into a 29-point gap with a limited number of American voters, and those tend to be the most conservative. So that money is – Dave Metz is actually absolutely right. The money has broadly not changed American support for clean energy. But for a select number of very important conservative voters and activists, it has become a very, very telling story about politics. And it will – is influenced Republican primary for president – Right. We're going to see whether it influences the general election. And that's, and that's a very important distinction to draw. We've been generalizing about what Democrats think or about what Republicans think. 
on these issues, issues relating to energy and the environment, what we see is that among Democrats, between the most liberal Democrats and moderate and conservative Democrats, there is relatively little difference in their positions on these issues. Among Republicans, between those who support the Tea Party, those who are regular Fox News watchers, and those who identify themselves as conservative. When you, when you look at that segment and compare it to more liberal and moderate Republicans who don't watch Fox News, who don't identify with the Tea Party, but think of themselves as Republicans, there are vast differences. That segment of the Republican Party on these issues looks a lot more like independents and looks a lot more, uh, frankly, in some cases, like Democrats than they do like other Republicans. So you're talking about a relatively small slice of the American electorate that has very, very different perspectives on these issues. But it is that slice of the electorate that, as Donnie said, is, the, is what votes in Republican primaries. Okay, and so... But, I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead. But, but Lauren K. My, my answer to that is, so what? The Republican primaries are effectively over now. We, we have a de facto Republican nominee going into a general election, uh, and, you know, if, the, if that Republican nominee is half as smart as he's given credit for, he will put that... Uh, those, those base, those, that, he will, uh, <laughs> right, he will, uh, I can't come up with a good, me- a good metaphor, a good metaphor to go, but, but the, uh, uh, he'll put that, uh, Republican base in his back pocket, right. and go after the, uh, the great middle of American politics where elections are won, are but won so, and lost. So what is not whether it affects the November election, it's if Mitt Romney gets elected. You've seen him, he published a book in the beginning of 2011, who said he believes in climate change, he believes it's man-made, partly, and he believes that we should invest in alternative energy. Now, he's, he doesn't really think climate change is necessarily happening. He surely doesn't think it's man-made. He questions the science, and he opposes alternative energy support. So that has had a real influence. And so when he becomes, if he becomes president, he's going to go in having staked that policy position. And he, whether he's held to that or not, Mitt Romney does have a little f- flexibility in his history, but whether he holds it, he has staked a policy position that may radically influence where we go with with energy in this that country. That may be, Donnie, that yeah. may be, but I remember back in 2008, uh, Barack Obama was foursquare against the individual mandate. I mean, things change. Things do change. Th- 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 things change, yeah, and, it's yeah. not, and it's not just because but, one, but one you candidate see, likes, likes an Etch-a-Sketch, another candidate likes a Slinky. I mean, you asked so what, and my yeah. answer is so what is, is, is Gingrich was on the couch with Pelosi in 2008. He's now completely the opposite. Romney wrote in his book a year ago. He's now completely the opposite. So, so what? There's a so what here. Yeah, I, I don't want to minimize. Just I, I don't want to minimize what you said about about their uh, about staking out a campaign position. Yeah. But but fundamentally, if you look at Barack Obama in 2008 and you look at uh, Mitt Romney in, in 2012. Uh, these these guys have got to get through their primaries, and getting yeah. through primaries is, uh, is 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 one thing, and getting through the general and governing is a whole other thing. Absolutely, it is. And, and actually, the, the point I was making is, is fair enough about the presidential race, but I think that's an entirely different animal because of the level of scrutiny, the amount of attention that's devoted to it over a very long period of time by voters across the political spectrum. That kind of evolution is possible. I was speaking more about races in Congress, mm-hmm. where the same primary process applies, but where every seat is different. And if you're in a Republican district and you win a Republican primary, you're fairly certain of being elected in November without having to change your opinions. When Barney Frank retired or announced his retirement, he said uh, he was leaving the institution because he felt that it had reached a point where every Republican that he was working with either thought like Michelle Bachman or was terrified of losing a primary to someone who thought like Michelle Bachman. Uh, now, the same thing is true among Democrats, right? It's, this, is, this is the nature of the way our political system is structured, and it promotes... 
uh, the parties moving to the edges rather than coming to consensus. But I would argue that the, that the, the line, the divisions between conservative Republicans and more liberal and moderate Republicans on this suite of issues are much greater than the divisions among Democrats. And therefore, that polarization among Republicans has greater consequences within the institutions that have to make decisions about these policies. And, and to Dave's point about the, the Republican Party nationally and the Republican Party below that, uh, there are many Republican governors, uh, Michigan, Florida, and the Tea Party governor in Arizona, who are not as supportive as maybe a green environmentalist from San Francisco would like them to be of alternative energy, but those governors have taken some positions on policy that support the continued economic engine that is the this clean energy, wind and solar. So it is very polarized at the national level in the national discussion. At the state level, we seem to have much more willingness to have a discussion about uh, expanding the energy economy in this country. Now, I think Dave makes a, uh, uh, a fair point, and I think that's a very good point about governors. Uh, but I also think that you can't separate that uh, I mean, what, what you described as sort of a, uh, of, of a shift in, in public opinion on the, uh, on the far right or in the precincts in the right, uh, I don't think you can separate that from uh, the economic context. And that, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're measuring these changes over time and during a time of economic crisis. And I think that if you look at any poll, I went back and looked at PPIC, uh, Public Policy Institute of California polls, on issues that concern Californians over the last uh, four or five years, and it's uh, and it just it supported what we all know, which is when time get t- times get tough, people care about the economy, and then after that they care about the economy, and then in third place is the economy, uh, and then w- way down below is uh, uh, stuff like education and, and healthcare, and, and eventually maybe they'll think about the environment. When things get better, people are feeling more confident. Those other issues. Uh, come up, and that's the context that we're that we're looking at that in. And so I, I don't here's, think that here's two quick economic facts. Uh, one is that the fastest growing industry in the United States, uh, according to LA Times, very recently, is solar industry, also yoga studios and, and hot sauce. But <laughs> but the solar industry. Here's a, here's another economic fact. There are about 101,000 Americans who work in the solar industry. And there are about 107,000 Americans who work in the coal industry. So there are as many jobs now, and this has happened only in the last three or four years, in the solar industry as there is in the coal industry. So the economic argument is, uh, is false. These are still small industries, but they are very fast-growing, and they are creating real jobs, not just in Silicon Valley, but in Missouri and Ohio and Florida and Montana. Yeah, the issue is not does – do. Is, are there jobs in the clean energy industry? Of course there are. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a, uh, there's been, it's been well documented. The question for voters is, is how much of a price do I want to pay out of my pockets in taxes and in foregone uh, economic growth? You may not disagree with that, but, yeah, but, yeah. but that message, yeah. how much am I willing to put up with in order to support this industry? That is, that, uh, that's what the, uh, the, the voters are questioning, not... Do I think there are jobs in the clean? Uh, absolutely grant that there are. Lauren Kay is president of the California Foundation for Commerce and Education, affiliated with the California Chamber of Commerce. Other guests today at Climate One are Donnie Fowler, a Democratic clean tech strategist, and Dave Metz, a pollster with FM3. Dave Metz, you've done some polling asking Americans uh, what they would pay for clean energy. Uh, 
But isn't it also true that what they will say to a pollster is different than what they would do with actually have to reach into their pocket? <laughs> uh, well, there's lots of reasons why it's difficult to figure out what people would be willing to pay for um, for the kinds of policy changes we're talking about. Um, number one, they, they don't get asked to pay it directly. They don't go to the gas pump and say, okay, here's, here's my share of money for oil exploration, for research and development, here's the oil company profits, here's the gas taxes, and here's the cap and trade share. It's all one lump sum. So it's not really a choice that's offered to them. Um, and so we have to ask them realistically about the aggregate price, what they pay all in for, for energy and for the other commodities mm-hmm. that are affected by these policies. And so if you ask people, uh, if we implement something like cap and trade or other regulations or a carbon tax, will what you pay for gas go up? And they say, yes, absolutely. Do you like that? No. If we don't pass these policies, will what you pay for gas go up? Yes, absolutely. Do you like that? No. And when they start to think about the long term and the curve that we're on, their consciousness is we're not making any more fossil fuels. They're not getting cheaper. The techniques that we're developing to explore for them and try to extract more are more expensive, more time-intensive, potentially more risky to air and water quality, um, and they're not ultimately in the long term going to make the commodity cheaper. On the other hand, renewable sources of energy in the long term are renewable. They are not going to run out, and there is a belief among the public that the cost curve over the long term is going to bend towards sources of renewable and clean energy. Now, they know that in the short term, it's not you can't flip a switch. You can't uh, simply change the, the, the uh, source of electricity that powers your economy overnight and have that be a costless transaction. Uh, and they're not happy about the idea that they're going to have to pay more at some point in the process. But they know where they want to end up, and they know that they're going to be paying more somewhere along the way. And the more they think about that long term, the more the way they evaluate the costs begins to shift. We're going to put a microphone out here and invite your participation. Uh, if you're on this side of the audience, we'd please ask you to go around through that door rather than crossing in front of this camera. We'll put it right there and invite you to come up with one one part uh, question or comment. And if you uh, need some help keeping it brief, I'll be happy to help. Um, <laughs> and uh, while you're doing that, I want to. This is often. Don't be shy. Come up there and uh, and enjoy the conversation. Um, <clears throat> High-speed rail is another example. Big-ticket item. Californians supported it at one point. The economy goes south. The prices go north, and and support softens. Is that fair to say, Dave Metz? That's fair to say. Lauren Kay? Oh, it's indisputable. Uh, so is it dead? High-speed rail? Think, do I think it's dead? It's, uh, it, it, is, it is not dead. Uh, it has a lot of political support. In Sacramento, uh, the governor is a very strong supporter. The president of the Senate uh, recently announced his support for uh, uh, getting the funds that they need. Uh, there's a little bit of money out there uh, that legislature can spend on this, and the legislature likes nothing more than spending money, uh, especially if they're not going to be around when the bill comes due in, in about <laughs> five or ten years. So I, uh, I don't think it's dead today. Uh, but I wouldn't be uh, investing in uh, land in the Central Valley that you think is going to be uh, covered by a railroad track. That's my advice. But you do believe that there is broad consensus for infrastructure and jobs in, in the state and the country, just not this kind. What's the, what is the kind of infrastructure and investment the country ought to be making? If not high-speed rail, where should America be investing in infrastructure? 
Oh my goodness. Uh, where, where do I start? Uh, in, in, in California, the, our, our ports are in desperate need for, uh, for better infrastructure, including the roads and the railro- railroads that uh, tie them up. You know, our mass transit systems in our urban areas uh, could use upgrades. Our, our highways are in terrible shape. And should um, that be public money? System. Who should pay for that? Should it be a gas tax? Should if it's it be public, if it's public, infra- if it's a public infrastructure, it's public money, and we, and we should uh, figure out a way to pay for it. Absolutely. There's, uh, I don't think there's much, there's there's not much controversy over the need uh, and over the over the benefit. You might quibble around the edges: how much should you spend on transit versus how much you should spend on highways? And you know, uh, there'll be people who think that you ought to be able to do it for free. But uh, I'd say there's a there's a general consensus that uh, that we need to spend more on our public infrastructure. The debate comes who pays and, and how. Mm-hmm. The head of the AFL-CIO and the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce were in Washington last year. Proposed a 50 cent a gallon gasoline tax that didn't last very long. But the idea was. Unions get jobs, business gets infrastructure, but someone has to pay for it. It's not going to be bonds that should be consumers. Would that be something that the, the California Chamber would be interested in? Uh, well, I don't know about a 50-cent uh, uh, national gas tax, but, uh, um, but yes, of, uh, of course. There's, 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 a, there's a way to thread that needle. It'll have to be thread. It's probably not going to be in the next couple of years because we're going to be uh, still recovering from a recession. We've got all sorts of... Uh, state needs, especially the state budget. Uh, the, uh, the voters are going to be asked uh, this November about how they feel about raising income and sales taxes. Uh, my guess is they're going to be pretty grumpy about it. And uh, if the voters turn down a statewide vote on a tax increase, it's going to be very hard to get a tax increase on anything else. And so this is a, this is a long-term, uh, a long-term issue and something that, uh, uh, I, I'm really glad you brought it up because it's something that the public and the politicians need to spend more time uh, worrying about than they are today. And I think high-speed rail is probably a distraction from that. Dave, Bennett? yeah, I mean, I would just agree with what Lauren said. I mean, we—it may seem like another uh, eon ago, but it was—it was 2006 when there was a package of infrastructure investments that was mm-hmm. on the ballot here in California that had strong support from labor, from business, and was overwhelmingly approved by the voters. Um, and I, we are in a different era politically and economically, but uh, ultimately the public's understanding that this infrastructure needs to be maintained and that they're the ones that ultimately will have to pay for it uh, hasn't changed. And, and I, I do think I'm optimistic that when the economy improves, we'll be at a point where we can start having these conversations yeah. again. There was another proposal. If 50, per, if 50 cents is too high, that's a huge jump. Uh, there was another proposal for a penny a month increase in the gasoline tax, and it had some bipartisan participants uh, Secretary Schultz, former Secretary of the Tre- U.S. Treasury, automakers, etc. cetera. Uh, the idea is that it's sort of, so it's a drop every month, so it's hardly noticeable. Gasoline's going up and down so much. Who's going to notice uh, a penny a month over 10 years? Uh, is, that, is that the kind of thing that maybe there's some appetite for? Or is it just any tax uh, is just not going to happen? Lauren Kay? Oh, there'll, there'll be a time when we put more uh, when we put more tax money into transportation, I mean there are, there are ways of doing it, uh, or into into public infrastructure. Uh, it's just it's it's more it's more a matter of uh, the economy recovering, and 
and something that we've talked about earlier, uh, which is the, the, the trust that people have or the lack of trust that people have in politicians spending their money. Uh, you know, the biggest impediment, frankly, to getting taxes increased uh, or more spending on these on these issues is it's it's really believe it or not, at least in my opinion less the economy than just the abject incompetence and ineptitude uh, that the people believe is inherent in in uh, in the legislature and in the Congress and you know you you cannot and you really cannot expect people to part with more of their money voluntarily if they think it's going to be flushed down the same old sewer. Johnny Fowler is government a sewer. <laughs> the FAA, I'm sorry, the uh, National Weather Service last week saved a lot of lives by predicting tornadoes in the middle, in the middle of America. Um, Americans wake up every day and drive on paved roads and used, uh, which were, as we've noted, started by the federal government in the 1950s, where they take trains that are on rails that were built uh, during the Civil War in the 1860s. So uh, Americans uh, often don't, don't remember the things that the government has provided them every day until it's being taken away. Um, and, but Lauren's right. There is, a, there is a lack of faith in government uh, by both conservatives and liberals and people in the middle. Uh, there may be different reasons. Um, in the energy space, a lot of Americans believe that you can't change policy at the national level because big energy companies and their lobbyists control the system. Um, so it's not that they don't want the government to send market signals or even to spend money on alternative energy, they don't believe it'll happen because the politicians are owned by lobbyists and, and, and old energy. So there, there is a lack of trust in government, but it's not just because it's government per se. And Dave Metz, your polling suggests that Americans believe that corporations can solve the energy and climate issues more than government. Um, I, I don't know that I'd characterize it totally that way. I think what the polling shows is that the public believes that there is a role for both the public and private sector um, in making the kinds of large changes to our national infrastructure that we're talking about here. Um, if the government were left on its own uh, to determine how money was going to be spent and, and, to, uh, and, to, and to develop the industries itself, it probably wouldn't succeed. On the other hand, if industry on its own, given the, the markets that are available today, were left to develop clean energy, it probably wouldn't happen on its own either. So it's going to take, as Donnie said, government that is playing a role, making some investments, sending some market signals, and that's something that the public is very comfortable with, the idea that there's incentives and, and the government is trying to uh, nudge industry in, in one direction. Uh, it's going to take that, but it is also going to take uh, industry doing its part as well. Dave Metz is a pollster with FM3. Uh, we haven't talked a lot directly on climate change. I want to do that before we close here. Uh, the Pew organization did some polling and, and came up with six Americas, a spectrum of people and their positions on global warming or climate change, ranging from alarmed, concerned, cautious, disengaged, doubtful, and dismissive. 65% of Americans they found in 2011 were either alarmed, concerned, or cautious, and a third of Americans were disengaged, doubtful, or dismissive. Is that consistent with what you find in your polling? It is. And so let's peel that back a little bit. So uh, does that coincide with the political spectrum? Are there Republicans who are alarmed and concerned? Are there, are there Democrats who are doubtful, dismissive? I mean, is that, does that spectrum also hold along partisan lines? Um, there, there is broad consensus among the American public on certain issues relating to climate. 
the vast majority of Americans believe that some kind of climate change is occurring. They disagree on whether it is primarily caused by human activities, and they disagree about what policy steps should be taken in the near term to address it. Um, most of those differences, to the extent that they exist, do fall along partisan lines. Uh, the biggest changes that we have seen in attitudes toward climate change and global warming have taken place in the last five or six years, and they have taken place almost entirely among Republicans. Uh, Democrats' level of concern about global warming has remained fairly constant for the last decade, and even independence has gone down a little bit. Uh, but since shortly after 2006, shortly after an inconvenient truth, uh, support among Republicans has, has plummeted. Uh, levels of concern about the issue, support for, for doing something about it. Um, and again, that's an issue that we see a very, very strong correlation with where people get their news. Uh, if you are a Republican who, for whom Fox News is your primary source of information, you are going to be much more skeptical about climate change. Now, there's a chicken and egg issue here. Is it that people with that kind of skepticism gather together and, and are more likely to watch Fox News, or is it that the information that they're receiving drives them further in that direction? It's probably a little bit of both, but that's the main trend that we've seen. But earlier, Lauren Kay, and I've read these reports myself, that say, well, when the economy gets bad, that people, the environment as a concern goes down, and concern about climate change goes down because there's other more primary concerns. Are you saying that's not the case, that, that uh, the concern about public uh, climate change doesn't wax and wane with the economy? I would argue that data shows that among Democrats it doesn't. Overall, if you look at, if you average together the opinions of all Americans, um, it, it has shifted over the course of the last few years. But that change has been driven largely by Republicans. But the, con- but, but the, uh, again, I, I think it's important to make a distinction, though. The, the issue of are you concerned about it is different from what would you do about it. Uh-huh. And the concern about it doesn't have to have anything to do with the economy. Uh, now, and maybe it does for some voters, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to. What you do about it, though, do you uh, impose a, uh, a regimen of, of cap and trade or a gas tax or a carbon tax or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be uh, right now, uh, or do you do it later, or could you have done it five years ago? Those are the questions that, those are the questions that A, matter for public policy, and B, are influenced by uh, the overall economic climate. So is there a, it's one thing to be concerned if it's cost-free, but if you're concerned and you have to do something about it, it's going to cost you, then that's going to have, have a different set of choices. Is that fair, Dave Metz? Uh, it's fair, although I would argue that, frankly, on a lot of the major policy options, opinion hasn't changed a lot either. Gas taxes were not popular uh, 10 years ago. Gas taxes are not popular today. They never will be. Um, <laughs> and as we've discussed here in California, AB 32 is, as a law in its broad strokes was popular in 2006, and it remains popular today. Um, you know, are there specific policy proposals where there is some difference? Yes, probably. Um, but, but generally, I think we overstate the degree to which public opinion is swinging wildly. Um, there is a fair amount of stability on these issues, differences within some subgroups and maybe on some very specific policy issues. Um, but the broad strokes of opinion have remained fairly stable. Recently, the New York Times reported that public, uh, another public uh, opinion poll is connecting extreme weather events with climate. And they're out, in this case, actually out ahead of scientists. They're, they're making a connection that scientists won't yet mate, make. So the question is whether you think that some uh, extreme events could actually you know, change perception of, of climate change. Or do you measure that at all? Uh, we do. And, and there's, a, there's a distinction to be drawn between people believing that a changing climate will, over time, lead to more extreme weather events 
and believing that changing climate has led to one specific event on the ground at one time. Uh, and what we're seeing among the public is an increasing awareness that these extreme weather events are taking place, a sense, whether based on fact or just perception, that they are becoming more frequent and more severe. Uh, and there is an attribution in their minds, even among some who are skeptical about the causes of climate change, that there's a linkage between the two. Certainly insurance companies know, know that it's happening, and they're very, very concerned about the, the cost that they're bearing. Uh, before we close here, we haven't talked about fracking, which is in the news a lot. It's, you know, it's very much of an issue. It's a regulatory issue here in California. Uh, we have some frac- hydraulic fracturing here in, in uh, California for enhanced uh, oil and gas recovery. Um, Lauren Kay, do you think that's something that, that uh, the public cares about? Should it be regulating more in California? Uh, fracking's been going on in California for decades and decades, and it's become an issue uh, in California because it's an issue uh, back east, and uh, uh, folks who make it their business to uh, regulate the energy industry in California have, have uh, uh, want to get on that uh, uh, particular issue as well. Uh, you know, it's, it's something the legislature is looking at, the regulators will look at, and if it's a if it's a problem, they'll deal with it. it hasn't been a problem for all the time that it's been uh, it's been practiced in California. It's different in California than in other states. In California, you frack for oil. Uh, in other states, you frack for for gas. They're different geological uh, structures. So it's 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 a different situation. It's probably going to wind up with a little bit more regulation because that's what we do in California, but it's probably not going to make much difference. Well, there's other states. Texas and other states have uh, more disclosure rules than, than California has. What's in the cocktail of liquids that's mixed mm-hmm. with the water? So actually, in, in fracking, California is not in uh, the most regulated state. There's others that are uh, have more onerous uh, disclosure uh, in terms of what's actually in the, in the cocktail and wh- exactly where they are, that sort of thing, but maybe that will come. Uh, does the public care about fracking, Dave Metz? Uh, well, the first thing I'll tell you is they don't like the name. Uh, if you're going to come up with a name for a process, fracking is about the worst brand you could possibly... <laughs> Worse uh, than cap and trade? <laughs> well, and actually the alternative, hydraulic fracturing, is also uh, they have a negative reaction to. Um, I would say here in California the public has very low awareness of it. As Lauren said, it's something that's an issue in eastern states, and we've seen uh, much more concern and, and awareness about it there. Uh, but it's an issue that hasn't become as ripe here in California as, as other places. Last question. I heard uh, Hunter Lovins, a author and a noted environmentalist author of a Natural Capitalism, she said at a conference this week that if Mitt Romney was elected president, he could do more on climate than President Obama in a Nixon to China kind of way. Yes or no, Donnie Fowler? It's possible, uh, especially with the opposition of the Republican Party to President Obama just on principle. Um, so in that sense, Romney might be able to pull uh, some of these Republicans, especially in the Senate. There's uh, six or eight or ten Republican senators who don't want to stick their head up by themselves, and they're looking for someone to do it. So could Romney pull six or eight or ten Republican U.S. senators into some sort of clean energy policy in this country? The answer is he probably could, but it's very difficult to know who Romney is uh, on this issue because he has moved around and around largely because of this very difficult Republican presidential primary. Lauren Kay? You know, presidential elections in many ways are like Rorschach's tests because uh, voters and interest groups and pundits can project their own their own vision on these candidates because they are either a blank slate like uh, Barack Obama was in 2008 
or an Etch-a-Sketch like uh, Mitt Romney. <laughs> I'll deny I said that, by the way. Uh, like, like Mitt Romney is alleged to be in, in, in 2012. And so you can, so you can say, you can pretty much attribute uh, your values and, and your policy preferences uh, pretty, co- pretty comfortably there and then build a theory around it. So uh, any, anything's possible, of course. Dave Metz, not really a polling question, but um, you know, is it possible that that uh, you know the public might go along with something just because Romney's supporting it, leading it? I, I, I think the factor that Donnie mentioned is the most important one, which is it's as a as a matter of being able to have an open and receptive audience in the Congress. That's an enormous advantage that Romney would begin with. Um, and as we've discussed, there isn't overwhelming public opposition to some of these policies that has to be overcome. And if you have someone who's willing to show some leadership who knows how to frame and, and communicate the issue in the right way and has a, a partner in Congress that's willing to support it, sure, I think I think there's there could be opportunities. As I heard a, a former assistant secretary of energy in a Republican administration say this week, uh, a lot of Republicans were for cap and trade until July, uh, January 20th, 2009. We have to end it there. Thanks to uh, our panelists today. Dave Metz is a pollster with FM3. Lauren Kay is president of the California Foundation for Commerce and Education, affiliated with the California Chamber of Commerce. And Donnie Fowler, a Democratic clean tech strategist. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One. Thank you. Thank you.